I want to, a little addendum on uh, the announcements that were shared earlier. Uh, Right after this service, we have our New to Bethel luncheon. And so if you are new to our uh, church and are interested in finding out a little bit more about it, uh, we have this luncheon. Um, I'll be there. Other church leaders will be there. It's in the big room in the Children's Center. So if you just go towards the Children's Center, keep walking, you'll get to it. And uh, we would invite you to come and be a part of it. It's kind of it's like an hour or so. And out the door you go. Love to have you. All right. We are continuing our series in 1 Corinthians uh, this morning. So if you would turn there, if you have a Bible with you, and we encourage you to bring a Bible, uh, because that's what we do. We study the, the scriptures together each, uh, each weekend. And one of the things to realize about the Bible is that, first of all, it was written 2,000 years ago. The canon of scripture was complete. Uh, we're dealing with a book that was written over a period of up to 1,800 years, written by over 40 different authors. And so as you read through the Bible, oftentimes you come to these passages where there is something that is very, it's very culturally difficult to understand. And we can, it's easy to see why. These uh, authors were writing from their own grid, their own culture, were often addressing issues relevant to that particular day that is no longer uh, culturally relevant to us uh, anymore. So Oftentimes, we're struggling to discern in the passage what is the cultural truth and what is the universal truth. The cultural truth likely will not apply to us anymore. The universal truth, though, transcends culture, transcends time, is always true, and uh, is relevant for us today. Now, let me give you a great example of what I'm talking about, and I'd like you to stand with me if you would. Okay, stand, and I want to read a passage of Scripture. Now, we believe all the Bible is inspired, right? Okay, so it's all relevant for us, and we want to be a biblical church, right? Okay. Romans 16, 16, this is what it says. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That's what the Bible says. So right now... I'm going to ask that we turn to the people around us and shake their hand. (laughs) And when you are done... When you are done, you may sit down. (laughs) Depending who you're sitting next to, this was shaping up to be a memorable sermon, don't you think? (laughs) It's a very popular verse in singles ministries. (laughs) Okay, so there is a great example. Uh, Greet one another with a holy kiss. In the culture of the day, that was the common greeting. It's still a common greeting in many places of the world. There are places in France, for example, uh, Egypt, where if you meet somebody on the street, you 
give them a kiss. In fact, I've been in Egypt and it's been explained to me that there is Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt. And in Upper Egypt, I forget which way it is, but in one of them, the proper kiss is uh, like on the one cheek and then the other cheek. And on the other part of Egypt, it is like one, two, three, back to the original cheek. And it's highly offensive if you give an Upper Egypt kiss in Lower Egypt or vice versa. So you got to remember where in Egypt am I and what is the proper greeting. We obviously here in America, this is not a, this is not a common thing. We shake hands. We may give a hug. We're not kissing one another. So there is a cultural truth there, but the universal truth behind it is that we are to sincerely love one another and to express that in our relationships with one another. Our study today brings us to what might be uh, the ultimate example of a culturally laden passage of scripture. And much of what is in here is uh, challenging to understand. And so I want us to remember the universal and the cultural distinction. And what we're going to do is we're going to study the universal and, uh, and the cultural, but then talk about how does this, how does the universal express itself in, in our uh, particular culture. Now, this is a passage that has shaped Uh, a lot of Christian lifestyle decisions. For example, if you've ever been over to Shipshawana, or if you've ever been to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, or some other place where there is an Amish uh, or Mennonite development, you see women wearing their hair in buns. Have you ever wondered where that came from? Have you ever uh, been in a place when uh, the time for prayer came and the men removed their their hats for prayer? You ever wondered why? Where where does that come from? Uh, There are whole denominations, Christian denominations, that require their women in public worship to have some kind of a head covering. All of those things come from how you interpret this passage that we're talking about today and what you view as cultural and what you view as universal. So with that said, let me read our passage today. 1 Corinthians 11, uh, beginning in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you which is a very strange verse right there because for all these chapters, he has been pretty much blasting them. And for basically the rest of the book, he continues to blast them. But there's this one nice little comment here. It's almost like he pauses, affirms them, and then just begins to pummel them again. But that's what it says. Verse 3, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. 
That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. We're going to have fun this morning, aren't we? (laughs) That's what the Bible says. We're not skipping over it, although it is tempting to do so. Let's figure it out. Now, clearly, what Paul is talking about here are problems between men and women, or I'm going to say masculinity and femininity, or biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, and how that is expressed in the cultural norms of the day. That's what he's talking about. Let's begin by identifying what is the universal truth? What's the big picture thing that Paul is concerned with? And we see this in verse 3, where he says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So Paul begins here by explaining key human relationships, the relationship between man and savior, the relationship between uh, man and woman or husband and wife. But these are all grounded on a more important and foundational relationship, which is the last part of verse three, the head of Christ is God, or to use the Trinitarian language, The head of God the Son is God the Father. Let's talk about this relationship. How how does God the Father relate to God the Son? Paul here says that the Father is the head of God the Son. Now we've got to understand what that headship means because he uses the same word to describe the way that we relate to our Savior and the way that women relate to Uh, Man relates to woman, woman relates to man. So what does that word mean? And this is one of the challenges of this passage is that there is debate as to what that headship word means. It's basically two options. One is that it means source. So that God the Father is the source of God the Son. There are some people, many people who, who believe that. Dr. Wayne Grudem, who's a guy that I... Uh, love and respect, a scholar that I trust, has done an exhaustive study of this word, kephale, headship, and has done it not only in the New Testament, but in all Greek literature. And in his study, over 2,000 examples, he did not find one uh, unambiguous example of where this word is applied to human relationships where it means source. But there are many examples of where this word is applied to relationships, and it means authority. Those are your two options, source or authority. Many examples of where it means authority. For example, Colossians 2.10. Christ is the head over every power and authority. And there are other examples. I won't get into them. So what I'm saying here today is that this word... Authority or headship means to relate to one another in a functional authority. That's what the word means. Now, let's talk about the Trinity then. So what does that mean in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? By the way, quick definition of the Trinity is that God is one, but that within the Godhead, there are three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
and that these three are co-equal, they are co-eternal, there is no difference in knowledge, deity, uh, uh, wisdom, power, all the rest, they are all totally equal. But within the Trinity, there is a functional, there's a functionality where they do not all function the same. There are roles that the Father has that the Son does not have. And things that the Son does that the Spirit doesn't do. And that there is a functional economy within the Godhead. They are equal, but they are different in their roles. And that the Trinity and this relationship within the Trinity is the most glorious and most beautiful reality in all of the universe. Let me say that again. When we talk about the way that the Father and the Son relate to one another, that this is the essence of all beauty and all goodness and all glory. It is the core. It is what God delights in. He he loves the way that when he looks within himself, the way the Father and the Son delight and relate to one another. They are equal, but they are functionally different. They love it. For example, Matthew 3.17 at Jesus' baptism. God the Father thunders over God the Son who is being baptized and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus in Matthew 8 describes his relationship to the Father and says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority. But speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And there you see it. There's a, there is a functional relationship within the Godhead where the Father ex- exercises headship over the Son. And the Son delights in that headship and willingly and gladly surrenders, submits to the leadership of the Father within the relationship. And that this is something that they love. They love it. They delight in it. It is not a duty. It's not a drudgery. The Son doesn't want to be the Father. The Father isn't secretly wanting to be the Son. They love their roles and their distinctions within their relationship. So got to see that because the delight that God has in his own, in the Godhead and in that relationship, he builds into the fabric of this creation. Little pictures or illustrations of what they are like within the triune Godhead. And primarily that is built into human relationships. When God made us, Genesis 1, he made us male and female, both made in the image of God, made to reflect what God is like. Our maleness and our femaleness are a part of the reflection of God. And specifically, the relay that the Father and the Son relate to one another. Now, an example that of this headship that Paul gives, first of all, is the way that we relate to our Savior Jesus. Verse 3 again, the head of every man is Christ. So, how do we relate to Christ? He is our Savior. We gladly come under his leadership and his lordship. We don't 
we don't, we're not secretly wanting to be Jesus. We're glad that he is Jesus and we are the recipients of his salvation. We relate to him. He is head good with that. Totally good with that. Want that. We also see that same word then used to describe the relationship between a man and a woman or husband and wife here that the head of every wife is her husband is what it says. Now, as a little side note, I need to tell you, there is also debate as to whether this is man and woman or husband and wife, because the word there for woman can mean woman or wife. And so the ESV, if you have an ESV, it goes with husband and wife. Most of the other translations, I believe, go with man and woman. I don't really know which one it is. Okay, so it just depends on how you how you translate that. So that's the universal truth. Now, let's Pick this up now into what is it saying then about human relationships and what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, and how we are to express that gender, sexuality, in culture. First thing he says is that man was created first. Woman was created for man and from man. Look at, look at verse, uh, look at verse eight. For man was not made for, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And basically, what Paul's doing here is he's just footnoting the uh, creation account. And if you know the story of creation and how God created us, then you know that this is the case. It made me think of um, my my old pastor Kimber Kaufman and the way that he would do his wedding ceremonies. And he basically gave the same message at every wedding that he did, I think. And it always included this one little section, which became kind of a little famous section, where he would say in his message, you know, when God created the world, he created Adam. And Adam looked around the creation and he saw that there was a he pheasant and a she pheasant. And there was a he rhinoceros and a she-rhinoceros, but there was no she-Adam. And so God said, it's not good for him to be alone. I'm going to make for him a suitable helpmate. And that's when God made Eve. And that's the story. That woman's purpose was derived from man's need. It is not good for man to be alone. Now, we could look at the story and say, well, isn't that kind of nice? But did God always know that there was going to be a man and a woman before he even created? Of course he knew that. So why not, God, if you're God, when you're making man, just go ahead and make woman at the same time. I mean, just get it all done with all at once. Why go to the trouble of making Adam and him naming the animals and feeling lonely and then deciding that he is going to make Eve out of the rib of Adam? Why, why, why do it that way? And what Paul says here, and also in 1 Timothy 2, is the reason that God did that was to establish the nature of man's relationship with woman. That man was created first. He is in a position of headship, verse 3, because of that. Woman derives her feminine purpose from the need that man had and God was meeting. So that's where he is going with this. The order of creation establishes the nature of the relationship. 
Paul says in verse 9 that woman was created for man. God did not create Eve. God did not create Adam for Eve. He created Eve for Adam. She is a suitable helper for him. Man was not made for woman, but woman for man. Okay, so there it is, verse 9. And I know that this goes against the grain of our culture today. And little sort of feminist things are rising up right now. That just doesn't seem right. That's what it says, okay? That's what it says. Women were made for men and made from man. And I hope by the time I'm done here, you'll see how this is a very, very good thing. But the reason for this is that God wanted the inner human relationship to reflect the glory of the inner Trinitarian relationship. So that the way that men and women relate to one another in their masculinity and femininity would be similar to the way that the Father and the Son have eternally related to one another, which he views as the most glorious and beautiful thing in all the universe and which he intends to be for our benefit and our good in our relationships with one another. Secondly, Paul says here that man is an expression of God's glory, and in the human relationship, women are an expression of man's glory. Look at verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now, right now, there's a way to take this that would be wrong. And to say, oh, this is a statement of value. And somehow to discern from that, that somehow the man is more valuable than the woman. If you are thinking that way, that is not what it's saying, and that would be a wrong way to take it. Much more right way to take it, and I would say much more sort of encouraging way as well to take this, is that it is a statement of glory. It is a statement of praise. That man exists to bring honor to God. And when a man is a man the way that God intended a man to be a man, and by that I mean his masculinity, God is honored when men are men the way he intended it. We bring glory to God. Similarly, (laughs) what was that? (laughs) In a similar fashion, a woman in her femininity is a brings glory to a man's masculinity because she is such a beautiful and wonderful compliment, C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T, compliment to his manhood. Femininity looks so beautiful next to masculinity, and masculinity looks so masculine (laughs) next to the beauty of, of femininity. Now, you may not believe this, uh, but, you, uh, but you actually do, even if you don't realize it. Let me, show you, let me show you how. How many husbands here would be glad to say this morning, and wise to say this morning, <laughs> that you married way better than you deserve? How many husbands say that? Amen. Hearty amen. All right? Okay. Now, the wise ones are raising their hands Uh, The unwise ones have a sore rib right now, which is a reminder of where your wife came from, by the way. (laughs) 
all men marry up. And all wise men acknowledge that. I was talking with my, uh, my best buddy growing up a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about his wife, and he, he married up, okay? And we were talking about how up he married. And his comment to me, he goes, about his marrying her, uh, he goes, yep, when I married her, I outkicked my coverage. <laughs> it's a football reference, so anyway, I thought you might like that. I outkicked my coverage. I have another friend uh, here in our church who for years has dealt with the bewilderment that people have when they meet he and his wife. Because there's just this look on their face where they think to themselves, how did you get her? You know? And he loves that. It's like, it's like a great compliment to him. That's right. She's with me. She is with me. And any good and godly wife is more than a husband deserves. And there is this sense in us when there is a real acknowledgement that this woman, this glorious creature who is covenanted to be my wife, who is standing next to me in the good and the bad of life, that this woman is way more than I ever deserved. And in her feminine beauty... She is bringing a glory to my masculinity that I neither deserve uh, nor appreciate as I ought. It is good. And when a husband feels that way, that his wife is a glorious gift, there is something inherent within us that says that is the way it ought to be. And the reason we feel that way is because that is God's truth. There's a sense of oughtness and rightness about it. And that is what Paul is saying here. Let me read this. Men, we are in a relationship with God where our existence as image bearers brings glory to God. And the existence of this stunningly beautiful inside and out creature known as a woman brings undeserved glory to us in our God-ordained position of headship and co-image bearers with them. Now, I read that to somebody on Friday, and they said, you better read that twice. So let me say that again. Men, we are in a relationship with God where our existence as image bearers brings glory to God. And I would say our masculinity brings glory to God. And the existence of this stunningly beautiful inside and out creature next to us known as a woman brings undeserved glory to us in our God-ordained position of headship in the relationship and co-image bearers of God's glory with them. That, I think, is what Paul is saying here in verse 3 and in verses 8 and 9. And I hope from this you're getting a sense that maleness and femaleness and uh, manhood and womanhood and masculinity and femininity is much more than body parts and plumbing. Our gender and our sexuality goes right to the core of who we are as persons and who God intended us to be as image bearers of his glory. It's critical. Massive. Massive. 
wonderful. So, to review, quick little chart here. What is Paul saying? Biblical manhood. Head of wife, woman, depends how you translate it. Man is created first. Man is in the image and glory of God. Biblical womanhood. Woman is made from man, created for man, and is a gloriously wonderful complement to his masculinity, which brings undeserved glory to him. So that's the universal truth. Now let's talk about how this is expressed in their culture and this whole matter of head coverings, head buns, and all the rest. Why does Paul care so much about it? Well, here's where the cultural thing, you got to understand the culture of the first century. Women wore head coverings. Essentially, they were more like shawls. And you've probably seen pictures of women. It's, it's in many parts of the world to this day. That's what women wear. You go to India or most of the Middle East, women wear a kind of, of cultural head covering. And that was true in the first century. The difference, though, in the first century was that this was the cultural expectation, and it was very important. It identified a woman as a woman who is accepting her role as a woman in culture. The only women who didn't wear head coverings in the first century were prostitutes and mistresses or women who were trying to dress like men. They were trying to look like men. This would be a little bit like if you were to come to church today and all the men here were wearing dresses. You'd walk around going, (laughs) he's trying to look like a woman. Look at him. A woman in the first century who wasn't wearing a head covering would be like, she's trying to look like a man. She's not accepting, submitting to the cultural expectation of what it meant to be a woman. So apparently what was happening in the church at Corinth was that in the gathered assembly like this, some of the women were removing their head covering. And apparently not just because they were hot. They were doing it in a purposeful way. And we don't know why. They may have viewed it as a kind of Christian liberty issue like we've been talking about. They may have been applying a teaching that Paul gives in Galatians where in Christ there's neither male nor female. We are, we are, we are one in Christ, so therefore I don't have to. I can, I can remove these feminine expressions. It doesn't matter. We don't know what. But the cultural issue was women removing their head covering and looking like men. The universal issue is that God wants our gender distinctions to be distinct and to be celebrated. So, look at verse 4. This will, I think, help open this passage up. Verse 4, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. See? Every man who eschews the cultural norm and covers his head is dishonoring his head. And who's the head of every man? Okay? Christ is the head of every man. It brings dishonor to Christ for a man to give up his masculinity and to try to be a woman. God's not honored by men trying to be women. Similarly, every wife 
who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And who's the head of every woman? Man or husband. A man is not honored by a manly woman. And I would say as well, this is an unattractive thing, generally speaking, when women are trying to be men. A man is not honored by that. Hello, is this your, is this your brother? No, it's my wife. <laughs> A man walks away from that going, oh. Paul goes on to say, it is the same as if her head were shaven, or it is the same as if she was completely trying to look like a man, for her to walk around with her head uncovered. And he will say in verse 15, that a woman's hair is her glory. And so ladies, here we're on a subject of some interest for you, women and hair. Why do women have more of an interest in hair, generally speaking, than men do. Ever wondered about that? I mean, think of even like this morning. For every minute that a man spent on his hair in this room, I'll bet women spent 10 or 15. Exhibit A. Just look around, okay? (laughs) How many men here spent a lot of time on their hair? I'm saying not very many. But you look at the women here, and there's all kind of stuff going on that took time and energy that they care about that we, men, we don't care about at all. Somehow, a woman's hair is tied to her identity as a woman. It is, it, is to her, it is to her glory. That's why, for example, when a man, if a man has cancer and goes through Uh, chemo and loses his hair. He's maybe sad about it, but it doesn't bother him that much. But a woman who goes through chemo, when she loses her hair, this is a very big thing. There's a difference there. And Paul recognizes that. So I hope that you see what he is saying here is that headship and head coverings doesn't have anything to do with the head itself. It is not about that. It is about gender and sexuality and masculinity and femininity and God's intent for these to be distinct. Because God the Father is not secretly trying to be God the Son. And God the Son isn't dressing himself up like he's God the Father. They are separate. They are different. And their differences are celebrated by God. Similarly, femaleness and maleness are different. They are not to be blurred. The distinctions are to be celebrated and loved and enjoyed. So for a woman to uncover her head... In a culture where the expectation is that her head is covered is to demean her glory as a female and her beauty, her feminine beauty, which is to be to her honor. Now, culturally, we don't, there's nobody here wearing a head covering. That's not an expectation. And so this is not, we're not talking about putting our hair in buns and and having heads covered. There's something much deeper and much more important than merely the external It is the glory of maleness and femaleness. Now, a quick look at verse 10, and then we'll get to some application. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. 
Now, I read all the best scholars I could find, all the best commentaries that I could find, and basically all of them said, we have no idea what this means. So I'm not even going to try to speculate what it means. We don't know what it means. When we all die and go to heaven, we'll find out what it means. But for now, it is a mystery. Okay, how does, uh, how does all of this apply? Let's get to some application now. You came here today to church. You want to hear what God has to say to you and your life and our time here. And uh, so what can we take away from this? First of all, as I just got done saying... And I think this is, this is critical. The differences between manhood and womanhood are not imaginary. They're not just there culturally. They are there by God-ordained purpose. And therefore are to be maintained and are to be celebrated. And I don't have to tell you that in our culture it's all going the other way. We are not, we're we're not for the distinction between male and female. There is the blurring of lines between what these things mean. Rather than a celebration of hetero, there is the promotion of bi and homo. Sameness. Not distinction, but sameness. We have men... Acting a lot like women. And we have women who apparently are trying to be manly. And God is saying, you are a woman and I want you to be a woman. And you are a man, be a man. Here today we have two options, male and female. You are a female because God wanted you to be a female. You are a man because God wanted you to be a man. Don't try to be one or the other. God wants you to be what he made you. Celebrate it. Promote it. Don't blur it. What happens is as men become more womanly or feminine and women become more masculine, God's design for heterosexual reflection of difference within the triune God is diminished. The glory of our sexuality is a derived glory. It is not inherently glorious. It is a reflected glory. Maybe like the moon is to the sun. We are reflecting the glory of the distinction within the Trinity. So as our distinctions between male and female are diminished, it is dimming the glory of the triune God. And that is why Christians and churches need to maintain those distinctions and celebrate them. Not go along with a culture that wants to diminish it. So, some suggestions. In the church and in our homes, we need to look for opportunities to affirm and celebrate masculinity and femininity. Parents, I would encourage you to affirm glimpses of masculine servant leadership that you see in your boys in the way that they relate to their mom or to their sisters. Begin to develop that and promote it in healthy ways. Encourage your boys to honor, listen, to honor feminine beauty in the way that they behave around the dinner table. Manners are there for a reason. It brings honor and dignity to the gathering of the family and honors the feminine beauty of mom as the hostess of the gathering. 
I would encourage you to encourage your boys to hold doors for women, to scoop out sidewalks for their benefit, and other things that teach them that women are to be honored and cherished. And as you do that, from an early age, they may start getting the idea that a woman is a very special person. And by the way, I would encourage you to model treating your wife as a very special feminine beauty as well. Similarly, I would encourage parents to teach your daughters how to relate to men and their masculinity in ways that are healthy by, first of all, teaching them to dress modestly so that they understand that their body is sexually reserved for their husband. Also, affirm their special interest in beautiful things. Little girls love beautiful things. Affirm that. Don't say, why can't you play football? (laughs) Affirm it. Celebrate it. Praise them for their inward beauty of character more than their outward appearance so that they begin to realize that their femininity is not primarily an outward thing. It is part of their image-bearing of God, and that this is a character thing. Dads, take your daughters on dates and help them to learn to relate to a man in conversation in a healthy way. In the church, I would encourage us to be a church that praises the beauty of the opposite sex and affirms that, doesn't mock it, but loves it and enjoys it. So that men, when men are exercising servant leadership in the church when called for, that the women delight in it and say so. And men, when we see women bringing to this assembly The beauty of kindness and service and love, which is so enriching to our congregation, that we don't overlook that, but we tell them how much we appreciate that feminine beauty that you bring to our community. So in the church, when the men are men, and the women are women, and the men are masculine, and the women are feminine, this is a good thing. And is a healthy thing. And is something that we need to realize what's going on here. And to see the theology in it. And to realize the reason it just feels so right and good is a reflection of the way that the Father relates to the Son. And the Son relates to the Father. Let's celebrate those differences. Let's not blur them. Second is that this passage teaches us that everything is theological. Everything is theology. Even the way that we present ourselves. Paul's concern here in chapter 11 was that by taking off their head covering in that culture, the women were making a theological statement that isn't true. They were saying by their way they present themselves, Theologically, that the son is secretly wanting to be the father because they were dressing like men. But that's not true. The son doesn't want to be the father. The son is happy to be the son, delights to come under the headship of the father. 
Men that dress like women, that'd be like the father wanting to be the son. But the father doesn't want to be the son. He's eternally happy to be the father and delights in the way, the role that the son has in that relationship. And this is just a picture of how everything that we do is theological. It is saying something about what we believe about who God is. And you could look at this and say, man, Paul, aren't you getting nitpicky? I mean, come on. You're writing the Bible. You're writing passage, a passage of scripture that Christians are going to read for thousands of years. Millions of people are going to read it and all that. Why spend time on women taking off head coverings in worship? I mean, isn't that kind of like a little bit of a small thing? But realize, what has he just said in verse 31 of chapter 10? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. Do it all to the glory of God. And we see in this, what we may think is kind of a nitpicky thing, we see Paul's concern that everything, everything in the church and in our lives is consistent with the truth of the triune God and nothing demeans his glory. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, including how you express your gender in culture, do it all to the glory of God. And this passage is a reminder that we need to look carefully at all the dimensions of our lives and to make sure that we are expressing truthfully that we believe there are three distinct persons in the Trinity and that my sexuality is a reflection of the holy purity of those relationships and the glory that God intended human sexuality to express So whether you eat Bethel or drink or make wardrobe selections in culture, do it all to the glory of God. That's the big point. And my best attempt at a challenging passage.